Welcome to the Radio 191 FM podcast. I'm joined by Associate Professor James Hedley from the University Politics Department. Good morning, James. Kia ora. How, how are we? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, just okay, and I'm not surprised. Um, just because what you do, you, your, your interests are Russian foreign policy, European U- Union, nationalism, ethnic conflicts, uh, and international relations theory. Yeah. Uh, all those things... Happening right, you know. That's right. Sadly, this is your bread and butter, James. It is, and I was thinking that I don't. Uh, it's good to be able to share my ideas and knowledge, but I don't like doing these things because it tends to be situations like these. Yeah, terrible. Um, starting, I think, back with the Kosovo War and, and onwards, Chechnya and so on. So it's uh, it's never nice doing these things. But it, but you're right, it does. I'm teaching a paper on nationalism and identity this semester where some of it, well, it's interesting. We start with the kind of rise of nationalism, particularly 19th century, and then leading into the First World War, into the Second World War, and then the post-Cold War thing. And so we'll be looking at analogous situations in some ways with the First World War, the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And then this really is all about that kind of post-Cold War setup, both the international relations setup, but also the, um, the breakup of the Soviet Union. What I looked at in my book was... Part of it was comparing the breakup of the Soviet Union and the breakup of Yugoslavia, and it's still playing out. Both of them are still playing out, yeah. and this is this is still part of it. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, you know, um, on the twenty first, when, when the Russians recognised two breakaway regions, um, like they did with Crimea. Um, that has a lot to do with nationalism, uh, where these the, the people of these regions, who they identify with, uh, and a lot of them identify with Russia and the old Soviet Union. You know, they, mm. th- that's why these areas uh, voted hard for the previous president, uh, and, and of course, when that president was 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 toppled, um, not that long ago, I guess these two breakaway regions um, that Russia first recognised a, a couple of weeks ago, or just over a week mm. ago. Um, heavily influenced by Russian Russian speaking areas so um, no doubt they weren't too disappointed in what was going on. I think they weren't so what you had was this line of control where some of the broad areas of um, Luhansk and Donetsk were um, controlled by separatists, supported mm. by Russia and there, you know, they've been subject to Russian propaganda but yeah, it's probably true that the majority really kind of see Russia as their saviour Beyond that, beyond the actual kind of breakaway area, that's not necessarily the true, and certainly, certainly the more you get out of that, the less so. So this idea that kind of Ukrainians are one people with Russia, <laughs> uh, which Putin seems to be trying to push, is, is completely wrong. And But also what's happened, I mean, it's happening now. Um, so I was reading reports about this, what's becoming indiscriminate shelling, really, of um, Kharkiv. In the northeast, which is close to the Russian border, it's a second largest city. I think it's um, predominantly Russian-speaking. Yeah. So the kind of people that Putin claims he's defending, but he's he's bombing it. Yeah. And and also, I think what's happened, particularly, I mean, basically, you've got, what a, one of the things I cover in my nationalism paper is how, in some ways, all states and all nations are in some ways arbitrary. And this is kind of Putin's argument: Ukraine's an ar- arbitrary creation, artificial creation, but. He had this long speech about what the Bolsheviks did in 1922. Um, but all states are. Yes. But identity... I mean, if you look at a map of Africa and you see these straight borders, 
which are just the result of how the carve-up happened during the imperial period. Mm -hmm. And then they became the borders of independent states. But that doesn't mean that over time a national identity doesn't develop within them. Um, and that's what's happening with Ukraine. There, were, there was a kind of longer-standing uh, national identity anyway, and particularly in the West. But what's happened, they've had 30 years of independence, which has consolidated that idea. Um, and also, since 2014, you've got this kind of shift. So people who might have been kind of more ambivalent and sort of say, yeah, we're, we should be friends with Russia. Um, we should kind of respect our rights, so to use the Russian language. They may still say use Russian, but they're beginning to identify much more as Ukrainians yeah. in a kind of civic sense, in the sense of saying we identify with the, with the multinational, if you like, Ukrainian nation and with the Ukrainian state as it exists as an independent state. So, in other words, denying exactly this rhetoric that Putin's trying to push. It's interesting because, you know, I didn't, when, with German unification... Um, there was a quick shift from the east to the west to one whole nation, uh, and then you know, and in, 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 in other Western countries, um, there's a separatist movements as well. You look at um, Barcelona, mm. uh, you look at Montreal, uh, you, you know, certain parts of Canada. Um, it's interesting, but not in the same kind of way. No, and the way to resolve it isn't to invade the whole country. <laughs> um, and I think. It's interesting. I was asked this in, in an interview last week, as, as the bombing, as the, as the invasion started, um, is this different from, you know, what happened in 2014 with Crimea and the breakaway regions? And in many ways, it is. That could, I mean, just in practical terms, that could be more contained because sort of separated it off. Um, but it's so much more significant this full-on invasion of an independent sovereign state. Um, in the name of uh, um, some pretty crazy rhetoric. <laughs> oh, the <laughs> neo Nazis. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you've got a <laughs> president and prime minister who are Jewish. Um, <laughs> yes, there's, you know, I mean, we probably discussed it at the time, I, I think, think in 2013. In fact, I do remember doing an interview here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was over the end of two, it probably was the end of 2013 when the Madan revolution was beginning. And I made the point that. A lot of the, well, in fact, pretty well all the news reports were saying this is a kind of popular uprising against, you know, the dictator. And I said, you're ignoring the fact that people in the East support that person. They voted for him. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And they're feeling right. that they're going, that their identity is going to be challenged by this. So there, there is that. There was the concern that afterwards, and, and that there were extreme nationalists involved in that, including in the Medan. Um, but it's complete rubbish, the idea of some sort of ultra-nationalist regime. Yeah, it's oh, democratically elected. It's um, it's true. There's still been kind of politics around the the language um, question, but it's there's no genocide. There's no um, repression of the, of the Russian speaking population or so. No, no. I mean, is it would it would it be best for the Ukrainian government to kind of cede these areas to Russia um, if they're going to be continuously mm. problematic? Yeah. I, I mean, that reminds me of a, a debate that I did during the Kosovo War, and this is what I was arguing for that, that Serbia is actually better off without Kosovo. And I remember um, one of um, very liberal anti Milosevic Serb saying, We can't do this, Kosovo is part of our identity, and so on. Now, I don't think that's necessarily so true for, um, for Ukraine for these areas, at least the kind of the breakaway ones as they were before, um, before the latest war. Um, it's partly the principle, and especially to do it under this kind of um, blackmail 
yeah, yeah, yeah. to do that. But I, I think, you know, I was asked a few days ago, you know, how might this turn out? I have no idea. I still have no idea. But there are no. potential scenarios we might begin to see, and I think one of them might be some sort of kind of maybe return to the status quo antebellum, the, how it was before the war. Um, and Ukraine maybe reinforcing the idea that it won't be joining NATO anytime soon. But I, I think that's un- unlikely. And again, any kind of moves um, in negotiations that sort of seem to show that Russia's been rewarded for this. Problematic both from the West but also from the Ukrainian government. I mean, but, but Ukraine wasn't joining NATO anytime soon anyway. No, it wasn't. <laughs> um, but of course, this has given it even further incentive to want to join. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no doubt. No um, doubt. But, uh, yeah, I mean, other scenarios, we do have these, these these talks which could, I suppose, end up with a ceasefire, where what you get is maybe a, a kind of consolidation of the status quo as it is now, mm-hmm. or in fact as it would be then. I mean, I think there is a danger of this, which um, we saw in Bosnia, actually, where the Bosnian Serb side, supported by Serbia, was in the ascendancy. And they kept these kind of negotiations going, which made it look like they were talking peace, but all the time they were trying to kind of make facts on the ground to negotiate from that position. And I think if you're looking at the map of what's happening at the moment, if you look at the south, you've got Russian um, tanks approaching Mariupol. That's basically being sort of surrounded. So what they're doing, what they would end up with is a kind of rim, really all the way from the land bridge going down to um, Crimea all the way across to the Russian border and to those breakaway areas and round to the north, especially if it includes Kharkiv. So what you might end up with is a sort of ceasefire where Russia's got control of a whole kind of rim of the east of Ukraine going right from the south there, right round um, to Kharkiv and further sort of northwest from there. Uh, again, that could never be recognised. No. Um, but it may be that it sort of consolidates and that um, the rest of Ukraine can can kind of work in a different way. But r- Russian demands are still about this kind of demilitarization, denazification, which means changing the government, which Ukraine can't agree to. No. I think what what is interesting, what is I mean, I've been I have been impressed by the by the strength of the sanctions. Yeah. And the and the Western reaction um, and the unity around that. I mean, today we heard about Switzerland joining sanctions. Switzerland, of course, always neutral, not a member of NATO, not a member of the EU. Um, joining sanctions, yeah, we've got Turkey potentially closing the straits. Um, even Orban, who sort of seemed to see Putin as, as his hero, joining in the condemnation. So, uh, strong measure. I mean, I did see an interview yesterday on Al Jazeera with a, um, a Ukrainian MP in Kiev who was kind of criticising the West for not doing enough both militarily support and, and sanction. But these are the strongest sanctions. I think they're as strong as could be done. It's a good question about oil and gas, especially gas, because the West well, is so reliant on this it. This is the thing, right? But but these sanctions really are having an effect, apparently, particularly this um, controlling, limiting the Russian central bank's ability to um, kind of get its funds from abroad. And yeah. the rubles plummeting. And the, the irony with this is that Putin came to power... Um, and was fairly successful in a way of kind of re-establishing stability in Russia, but also kind of getting improving standard of living, getting the economy going again after the chaos of the 90s and the, and the crash of 98. And yet he now seems to be plunging Russia back into that situation. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and what about the targeting of the oligarchs as well and their funds and their families' funds? Yeah, it's interesting um, seeing um, Dodo Pasca, who I know of from my own research, is um, heavily involved in the Montenegrin um, uh, um, aluminium industry, I think it is. Um, so an international oligarch, but obviously a Russian oligarch, and you go back to the early Putin era where he kind of did the deal with the oligarchs that he wouldn't necessarily clamp down on their kind of corrupt gains. And, of course, he kind of supported many of them as long as they didn't challenge him politically. But now I think people like Deripaska are saying... And, and it's not just the big oligarchs. It's also those uh, those with any kind of businesses, you know, any yeah. any, and also the more general population. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And especially in the kind of bigger cities and the younger generations who see themselves as European, who want... I, I've read a very interesting quote from um, somebody, I think, from Moscow in The Guardian today, saying we are no longer a member of the international community. We've been kind of ostracised. And that is what has happened. Yeah, And yeah. I think it's important. And I think that would remain, even if you had this sort of ceasefire type thing where Russia was still controlling bits of eastern Ukraine or whatever, that will remain. So I suppose the only potential positive out of this might be that this leads to change in Russia. But... It's interesting. One of my PhD students, who's um, he's from Tajikistan, but he's ethnic Russian, and of course he's entered the war. And like other PhD students, are having a terrible time. You know, he has friends, potential family members who support all of this, so can even talk to them. Um, but he's been following on Telegram, which is the kind of equivalent of Twitter, um, the yes. pro and anti sentiments and he says it's completely polarized now That's and so if there is change in russia there is a real challenge i mean it has to come really from the top anyway um not putin himself but you know challenge to putin from the top but within society you may end up with a sort of if you think about that kind of polarization with trump's america or yeah brexit britain where you really can't find a compromise <laughs> and potentially we might see that sort of thing in russia if there is any potential of change. I mean, I must admit, I've, I, I'm amazed at the bravery of the, the number of Russians who have come out and protested. There are a lot on the streets, and I'm, and that is leading to some crackdowns, and I, I, I wonder just how strong those crackdowns will get on top of their own population. Yeah. I can imagine it will get quite heavy. I think it will, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it's interesting you're, you're mentioning young Russians. There are a lot in London. There are a lot in Switzerland. Um, mm. You know, they go off to school there. Um, their parents have a lot of money, yeah. uh, a lot of cash in, in London property, the pr- London property market, yeah. uh, other European capital property markets. That's right. I mean, we saw it in a smaller way with Abramovich that he wasn't able to get a, a, a British visa, so he ended up getting this Israeli citizenship and things. So that's the owner of Chelsea Football Club, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, no, you're right. Um, where I did my PhD, the School of Slavonic and East European Studies, part of UCL now at University of London, when I was there in the 1990s, it was it was sort of known as the last bastion of Yugoslavism because all these people are kind of refugees from Yugoslavia, often were against the nationalism, mm-hmm. saw themselves as Yugoslavs, often from mixed marriages and so on. And so a lot of them went to cease to study. Um, and then it began to change. So in the sort of from the 2000s onwards, it was sort of these rich Russian, a lot of rich Russian kids. I remember meeting one who had been to the same school that Prince Charles went to and very poshly spoken. Yeah. Russian, yeah, exactly yeah. the kind of person you're, you're describing. So you're right, they, they kind of live in those two worlds. And 
The hope is that, I mean, in the British case, you mentioned Switzerland as well, so the signs hopefully there as well. So they're not part of the EU, either of them, but hopefully no. that they will, you know, there's concerns that in the UK, you know, some of these are donors to the Tory party and so on, but let's hope that they take a, a firm stand on this now. They should have done years ago. I mean, they should never have taken all this dodgy money, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. even in the 1990s before Putin. <laughs> The, uh, the one, the, the one th- chess piece here um, that we haven't talked about is China. Mm. Mm. Um, there's new pipelines going to China. China mm. is energy hungry. Yeah. Um, you know, will will could potentially China take enough um, from Russia to prop the Russian government up and, and kind of lessen the. the yeah, because of course these yeah. sanctions have just come in and they're hurting yeah. right now. But you know, c- could could the East kind of supplement what's happening f- f- with the West? Yeah, I mean, just on the sanctions. I mean, so f- there were sanctions anyway after two thousand fourteen, and and um, Russia built up these big currency reserves and things. And now they are under threat a lot now. So and and with the ruble plummeting kind of become devalued as well um, but Putin also kind of did this what he called import substitution so basically encouraging well, but basically banning imports of certain products from the EU and then they're getting produced by Russia so there is a bit more self-sufficiency than there was before but I think it is pretty significant now as you say oil and gas exports are the key and, and mm. potentially China as you say would be a, 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 a substitute demand for that it already is there anyway um, so China's politics on this matters. Yes. Um, some people see it significant that China abstained rather than vetoed the draft revolu- resolution that went to the <laughs> UN Security Council. It's not much, really. You'd want, especially as China in the past has always been about territorial integrity and sovereignty. Yeah. Um, you'd want a stronger message than that. But nevertheless, yes, it wasn't kind of... Uh, coming out totally in support and of course it doesn't want to um, alienate fully its relations with uh, many of its trading partners even if some of the, the it's got its own tensions with them I, th- I think it goes back also to, to that question about you know the younger Russians and so on it's always been the problem with Russia it's too heavily dependent on these um, big energy resources it hasn't had that kind of diversification of the economy there's been a kind of window dressing of it Last time I was in Moscow in 2016, of St. Petersburg, too. You know, very, you know, lovely neighbourhoods, very kind of trendy cafes, restaurants, and things. Really kind of nice middle class sort of areas. So you got, and and this was a deliberate strategy by Putin after the protests in um, 2012 um, to kind of buy off the middle classes and things. Mm. But as we said, they still kind of they, they got an image of what Russia is in the world, and they, they don't want it just to be an energy supply to China. Yeah. And also yeah, it makes yeah, yeah. Russia maybe too dependent on China as well, geopolitically. Yeah, I've got a couple of friends from Minsk, and I see them, um, you know, going on holidays to St. Petersburg and, and living that kind of yeah. upper-middle-class <laughs> life, you know. Um, yeah. And I find it really interesting, and I've talked to a couple of them actually quite pro uh, so I've had some horrible chats and yeah, probably not right. friends anymore. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> 
But it's interesting, <laughs> they, 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 you know, and I don't want to call it a Western way of life, but they have developed that and they have, uh, you know, kind of really taken mm. that on board. Mm. Uh, and they may be slipping away. Yeah. And that may be a catalyst for change. Yeah. But then you've got that crackdown because, you know, he's got the military, he's got the police. He, I mean, he headed yeah, the... And he's got the propaganda, of course, as well. Oh, yeah. So, I've, watched, I've been watching RT. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it is true that, you know, there, there's a lot of people who agree with his geopolitical mindset on yeah. this. Yeah. Well, um, but some of that has, and they would have done anyway, but, the, the, you know, that's reinforced by the propaganda. And then, of course, we always have to remember that Russia is um, it's not Moscow and St. Petersburg. It is very varied. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. But, yeah, that also kind of means that there are different interests, different identities. I mean, it is a, a highly multinational state, multi-ethnic state. Mm, mm. So this idea of kind of Russia being a kind of what he really sees as kind of re-established Russian empire based on the idea of the Russian nation would, I, I would think, would be threatening to um, uh, some populations within Russia itself. Yeah, 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 yeah. To, to I mean, he, the irony is, of course, he, he's kind of accusing Ukraine of being neo-Nazi and so on, but you know, not only does Russia support neo-Nazis in, in the EU and so on, but it, there's differences, but in many ways... It is what a fascist regime now, in many ways because of Chechnya. that control. Yeah, but in many ways that kind of control of the population at home, that um, ideology now of a kind of greater Russia, um, and that kind of repression of any kind of opposition as being kind of the enemy within. And I would add, and this is something that's worried me for a long time, there is a sort of mindset among some Russians of a kind of which is a fascistic one, I think, about violence and, and military might is what makes a nation strong in the world and, and what makes it a real nation. Yeah, yeah. Which, of course, Putin's encouraging. That's but but they, he's, he's got constituency around there. What is the church saying, do you know? Because they've become quite a power. Uh, I haven't really followed that. What I did see was that the ecumenical patriarch in Constantinople has... Um, Constantinople. Well, it is Constantinople from, <laughs> yeah. from his perspective, but yeah. in Istanbul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the thing about the Orthodox Church is that it's you know it's got different national churches, mm. and part of the politics in Ukraine has been that the Ukrainian um, Orthodox Church. Well, there was already a Ukrainian Orthodox Church, but there was also a Ukrainian Orthodox Church attached to the Russian Orthodox Church. So basically, a branch of the Russian Orthodox Church. You also have the Union Church, and then Catholic. Catholicism, yeah. as well as Jewish populations, so, so it's, it's highly complex in terms of religion. So. But um, the patriarch, so he isn't the kind of leader of all Orthodox, but it, there is some sort of idea that he's the kind of spokesperson for this kind of club of Orthodox um, national um, churches, and um, he came out condemning it. But then he had already fallen out with Putin over this because he had recognised. And, and the Russian Orthodox um, Patriarch, uh, because he had recognised the Ukrainian Orthodox Church as being separate from the Russian one. So my we'll suspicion see. is that the Russian Orthodox... I, as I say, I haven't actually seen anything about this, but my suspicion is the Patriarch's probably strongly supportive because he's been very much in line with the Kremlin. Kremlin supported them. Yeah. And you get this whole kind of ideology, and this again goes back to at least conservatism, conservatism if not fascism, this kind of idea of traditional family values and that kind of othering of LGBT people and so on. I've got got a PhD student who's who's working on this and again very challenging for her at the moment because she's Russian, she's here. Yeah. She finds it very hard to 
communicate with family and so on and friends well friends mainly on her side on this but yeah it's, it's affecting so many people oh very much so i've got a friend who's coming on the show on thursday's a musician a former former radio one dj just released a new song so we're talking about her new song but she's also ukrainian yeah so i think yeah, our chat will change slightly to what we're in, when initially is, going to talk about when is that going to be on thursday morning right. yeah 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 how about eight so great uh, a good friend vk uh, who uh, your former Radio 1 um, drive show host now living up in Auckland but right. he's a very staunch uh, Ukrainian uh, wahine and, uh, and a beautiful one at that alright right, well we'll have to leave it there Jim but um, I'd, I'd actually like to talk to you quickly um, about a couple of your students and maybe going to get a couple in uh, and talk about their perspective on a few things since you've mentioned a couple of that yeah so I mean I did want to finish by saying I mean just this this uh, we were saying before the interview uh, how much in shock yeah all of us were I suppose but especially those of us who kind of study it but then those with family members and so on or from Russia or Ukraine and just you know the, the, just how heartbreaking all of this is for the people of Ukraine and for those who oppose Putin in Russia and so on um, but also I would like to say for well first of all very close friend and colleague of mine Natalia Chaban at University of Canterbury who's Ukrainian and her family are in a terrible situation in Ukraine now. She's all, she also got COVID the day of the invasion. Um, so my heart goes out to her and, and my PhD students. I've got five PhD students who are all working on either Russian or Ukrainian-related topics. Yeah. Two of them are ethnic Russian and opposed to Putin. Um, one is Italian, look at the far right in Italy and had their links to, to Russian nationalism. And very kind of personally affecting. They were all there at the demonstration on Saturday with me uh, in nice. the octagon. Um, and people, it's very hard for people kind of working on this sort of topic, even if they're not Russian or whatever, because it's of so time, so part of what your identity is, and, and hard to get a break from what is your work anyway. And I have an Estonian student who was working on, or is working on, democratization in Ukraine, and she's in Ukraine in Estonia. She did a field work in Ukraine, got stuck. Went back home to with the border shutting. Oh, with the border. I mean, with COVID, right? Well, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. had a very tough time being sort of stuck back in Estonia, and then you know, Estonia, of course, is on the front line with Russia. Well, this is the thing. Well, we're talking about the political side of things, but there's mm. 25. Oh, I can't remember what's the population of the Ukraine. There's millions. Of uh, 44 million. I 44 check million. It. Yeah, it was kind of bigger than I'd realised. So. Um, but I'm, I'm sure um, that they'd be keen to come, and any of them would be keen. To come and talk. There one other one as well, uh, Onet, who's um, from Turkey and looking at um, kind of this rhetoric of um, kind of uh, conservatism domestically and how that links into foreign policy. So they're all kind of doing things related to this sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Dimitri's looking at um, debates in the Security Council and Russian accusations of what, what's known as whataboutism, sort of saying, well, you accuse us of this, but look at what you do. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, 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 the old tit for tat, you, yeah, yeah. Uh, which go, g- continuously And Putin did on. a whole stream of them in his second address last week. Yeah. It was just a rant about, look what you did in Libya, look what you did in Iraq, and, oh, and so on. Yeah, 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 and there we go, Nicaragua, we can yeah. talk, talk yeah. on and on and on about the United States, uh, and, and many other nations as well. Uh, with James, thank you so much for coming in. Um, a terrible topic to talk about. Um, and uh, yeah, um, like we said before, sadly you're bread and butter, my friend. Yep. <laughs> sadly. Uh, have a wonderful day. And okay, thanks. I've got a lecture now. I've got to go to. Yeah, you should. I've got to go to the whole. Yep. 15.
This was a Radio 191 FM podcast. All of our content lives online at r1.co.nz.